This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. We have a, a great, great author today, one of my all-time favorites, Craig Johnson, and he's here to talk about his new Walt Longmire mystery called Next to Last Stand. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm just You know, every book you write in this series is really fun to read. <laughs> well, thank you. And, thank and you. I, I don't just say that lightly, because there are some series that I will tell you, there were. I can tell you certain books that I didn't like in the series, but I have never read a book by you that I did not like. Oh. That's very kind of you. Very kind of you. It's also true. I, I would not say it if it weren't true. I, what would be the point of lying to you? <laughs> but I mean, every, there's something enjoyable about every book. I started reading this book and I thought, oh, am I going to get in and be interested in this topic of Custer? And then before I knew it, I was fascinated by the whole thing because you, you, you go through the history, every little detail of it, and I love the way you do that and what's true and what isn't. You know, and it's just fascinating. I feel like I'm. And I, I'm, I was never big on history in, as a kid. I don't know why. History always bored me. I don't know uh, why. Obviously, you you must love history to be able to write like this. Oh, I do like that. But I mean, this was you know this was an interesting book to attempt. Like that, you know, first of all, I mean, the Little Bighorn is about ninety miles up the road um, from where my ranch is. Like it, and so it's kind of local history um, for one thing. Like that, and then the other thing is, I, I kind of have to admit that you know my attitude was a little bit like yours in the sense that, um, I don't know, I mean, there are some subject matters that are just so huge, you know, that you just, that they're kind of, you know, uh, intimidating to think about, you know, having to do all the research and try and find out all the things you're going to have to find out, you know, to include them in your books. Like, and this one was definitely one of the ones that I was a little standoffish about because I thought, oh, my gosh, um, hold on just a second, David. My wife is talking to me. Can you hold on just a second? Yeah, sure. Okay, we're back. <laughs> no problem. Nobody heard what she said anyway. So. <laughs> Actually, she was just now telling me we're number five on the New York Times bestsellers list. Already? Right so, yeah, yeah. So that's so that amazing. Was, no, that's good news. Like, and I wanted to ask you that too. How how far up have you gone in the New York Times? Um, I was four last year, like that. But this has been a weird year, you know, for books and everything. Um, and since there was no tour, you know, it kind of made things a little bit more difficult. I think for everybody, um, you know, getting books shipped, you know, and getting them, you know to the bookstores and out on the floors and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just been kind of a, a strange year. Like that, um, We kind of circumvented that a little bit, like that by having uh, a lot of the actors from the television show, you know, that uh, took place, uh, you know, took part in the uh, the tour with me, which was kind of wonderful. Like that we knew, you know, there was never going to be a point in time whenever the TV actors were going to be able to go on tour with me all over the country like that. But we thought, well, you know, everybody's stuck at home. You know, maybe they could you know, think about going the tour with me on a virtual sense like that. So they did. Like, and it uh, it kind of had a, a wonderful effect. Like, but uh, but yeah, to go back on, on what it was that I was saying, like I mean, you know, Custer and the Little Bighorn and everything have always been, I guess, something of a mountain, you know, that you're going to have to climb. And I've just seen how many people get just drawn into that 
rabbit hole, you know, of uh, research like that that just kind of drop into that rabbit hole of research, you know, and I'm uh, in, in that particular subject. And I just, you know, I didn't know if I really wanted to, you know, do all of that like that. But I actually started the research on this book almost eight years ago, um, just kind of, you know, picking and choosing things that I was interested in. And uh, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm, I, even though I love the research, even though I love history, I love all those things like that, I'm not a big one for um, cataloging, you know, information, you know, right. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, for me, I, I kind of tend to you know, refer to, you know, the method that I use is the creek bed method in the sense that, you know, I just, you know, go along, read, research, watch, you know, documentaries, uh, you know, check stuff out on the, re- you know, on the internet, like that, go, you know, to museums, do all the things that I need to do, um, but mostly read. And then what happens is, is when it comes time to sit down and actually write the book, um, as a general rule, I've got all that information, you know, in my head. So it's just a question of, you know, sitting down like that and remembering. And whatever I remember, you know, the, you know, the, the bright and shiny spots, you know, the, the little things that are like, you know, still visible through the water in the creek bed, those are the things that are important. Those are the things that are important to put in the book so that, you know, the reader can find out about them. And generally they're not, you know, the big, you know, historical facts, you know, because anybody and everybody, you know, pretty much knows the story of the Little Bighorn and what happened. But, you know, the smaller details, you know, about, you know, Custer and uh, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, you know, and what happened, you know, the smaller details that, you know, maybe have escaped, you know, up until now. I mean, we've been really extraordinarily fortunate in the sense that here in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, um, there's been a lot of research done that, you know, hadn't been done before like that, and a lot of information has come out, and a lot of really wonderful books. I mean, one of the reasons why it is you may not have responded, you know, to, to historical research was because it was so poorly written. I mean, you know, back in the day, I, you know, right. if you remember or not, but like all those history books, all it was was just numbers and dates and things like that, you know. And for me, you know, um, the introduction of like, you know, writers like, you know, uh, Nathaniel Philbrick, um, James Donovan, people like that, who you know, are not only you know, consummate researchers, but also are really wonderful writers in their own right, um, you know, could actually pull all those details together and, and come up with a narrative, you know, that, that makes this historical moment, you know, really, um, really incredibly, you know, attractive like that and, uh, and, and understandable. I mean, that's the big thing. I mean, I had heard the story of the Little Bighorn so many times, but I never quite understood, you know, exactly what it was that happened. So, so I knew eventually it was going to end up in one of the books, and then the point becomes, well, then what's the access point? You know, what it is that uh, right. that you're going to use to you know you can't force it into the series. I mean, it's got right, it's got to make right. some sense. You can't just say all of a sudden you know pull it out of the blue because you know readers don't like that. Oh no, absolutely, and I understand completely. Like you know, one of my favorites, Cornelia Reed, like I was actually doing a book about upstate New York one time. Like and uh, you know, she she started doing research on the inland waterways, you know, the, the canals, you know, in, in New York State, and and so when she wrote the book, you know, she had something like I can't remember what it was. She was laughing about, and she said I had like five or six pages, you know, about the history of you know the, the you know the canals, you know, the waterways in New York State. And her editor got back with her and says, "Okay, does somebody drown in the canal?" And she's like, "No." She says, "Well, then you get one paragraph, okay? That's what you get, one paragraph." <laughs> so, you know, you, you have to have to use a little bit of uh, you know a little reserve, like uh, you know, even if you get carried away with it, if it doesn't have something to do with specifically the story that you're talking about, well, then you know you got a problem on your hands. Well, when you so, when you write all these books, I mean, you've written. This is the 16th one of this series of uh-huh. the full-length full novels. Uh-huh. But 
they're, every one of them is interesting. I, how, I, I just wonder oh. how you do it. How you do it so every book is interesting. Because, you know, you, you think to yourself, well, he's going to hit a bad, he's going to hit a bad one at some point. And you have it. <laughs> and I, and I just, I, I mean, Cold Dish was just spectacular. I still remember the fun I got out of reading that book. It still stays with me. That's how. Oh, good. I mean, and, well, I'm and glad that, to hear that. Like, well, it's also according to your know, you know, personal taste. Like, you know, because I've had people who've written me and said I didn't like book so and so, or I didn't like really? such and such. You know, and you know, and that's okay. I mean, people have varied tastes. Like, and then one of the things I'm trying to do with the books is try and do something different right. you know, with each one. I mean, this was the first art heist book, you know, that I'd ever even remotely attempted, you know, to write, you know, with Walt. And so, you know, that that you know that you, you try to do something different with each one, like that, you know, simply because. You know, one of the things I don't want to do is just, you know, do a formulaic book that's the same every single time like that. You know, right. I mean, I think that there are a lot of readers out there that would like it if there were, you know, the, the, the two big emails that I get after every, um, every, uh, every book are, number one, you beat up on Walt too much, you need to take it easy right, on exactly. the next book. <laughs> and then the next one is, there was not enough of my favorite character, insert name of character here. You know, whether it's right. Henry or Vic, or, and I know I'd reached a certain point when people started writing me and saying there wasn't enough dog, you know, in the last <laughs> book. And so, so, you know, I, I knew that, you know, but the problem with that, of course, is, is that if you have the same exact amount of the same characters in every book, well, then, you know, that's a formula. You're, you're really kind of approaching a formula at that point in time. It's very e and it's very easy to get into that. I mean, it's very oh, easy yeah. to fall into that trap of oh, having yeah. that. I mean, would you, do you always know it? Do you always know that you're doing too much of one character? Or is it always apparent while you're writing it? Well, what I'll do is I'll pick a story. I'll pick a storyline like that that I think, you know, will exemplify. Because the there, there are two big things that I take into consideration when I'm considering a plot. Um, one is, you know, where are the characters at this you know, point in their lives? You know, the, the other one is the, the, the seasonal thing. I mean, I write the books in a season. It takes four seasons to get through one year of Walt's life. Um, oh, and then, you know, of course, I wouldn't want to write like a rodeo book, you know, that takes place in January. Like, you know, so I always take into consideration, well, will that plot fit? You know, in the season that I happen to be in, in Wyoming, and that that has a big, has a large scale effect because you know sometimes I'll have to shelf a book, you know, for three years, you know, before I can get around to the season that I need, you know, to sell to to, to, to tell that book in. Um, and then, like I was saying, like then the other one, the big one for me is like, where are the characters at this point in time? You know, where are they? What's going on in their lives? What kind of an effect is this story going to have? How is it going to evolve them? I want to tell you that though now I, I read Land, Land of Wolves and, the, and Next to Last Stand back to back, <laughs> and you know what the problem is now? I'm I'm stuck on Walt, and I want now I want to read another <laughs> book. I have no other book to read. I, I mean, like uh, it's like being being in withdrawal. Do you know what that does for the reader? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm 13 chapters into the next one, so there's hope. You know, so nothing to worry about. The next book is you know is well on its way to being done. Like it, so. Uh, but you really do. You there. and I. I mean, driving to work this morning, I'm thinking I really miss Walt already. Aww. And I thought, and, and you think I'm making this up, but I'm not. I truly feel this way and you know it's hard when you fall in love with characters and you read books back to back you're having so much fun you're like well where's more i want more I know, I've heard, you know, from, from readers before, like, that they, you know, they're, they're a little bit, you know, jealous of readers who stumble onto the series, you know, uh, and suddenly have 16 books, two novellas, and a collection of short stories, you know, to meter out, you know, before the next book comes out next year. Right. Um, but, 
yeah, that, that's you know that's the highest flattery there is. Like that is you know is to you know to know that you know that people you know submerge themselves into that world and into those characters. I mean, if you open your emails and you got all these emails saying we want more, we want more, that that would make you feel really good. I would. Think. Oh yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to have happen, you know, because I mean, yeah, you invest so much of your time and energy, you know, during the course of a year, you know, into these projects, and you know. You, you like to think that it's going to go somewhere where you know it'll have an impact, you know, where people will really enjoy it, will really, you know, get something from it, where it will really move them, you know. I mean, right. that's, that's important to me. Look at, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I tend to refer to what I write as you know, you know, socially responsible crime fiction in the sense that, you know, I'm not looking to just stack up bodies like cordwood. I'm looking to like you know have something to say, and uh, it's always wonderful, you know, whenever it strikes a, a, a chord like that, and there's a resonance, you know, in the reader enough so that you know that they really really connect you know with those characters and understand what they're going through and, and you really have a and i don't want to say this so people look at the last page of the book but there's really a, a really fascinating last line in this book that just makes me <laughs> laugh every time i read it and i think <laughs> and i think i wonder if he'll just re- he'll just continue on the next story right from that what, what he's saying <laughs> you know. well, we'll, we'll have to wait till we get off the air and then we'll discuss it really quick okay so you can... well, now everybody at home's like what's he talking about yeah no, we now they're all going to open they're all going to open to the last page and read the rest of the last page. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know I, there's something joyful about walt walt there's something joyful about the, all the characters i mean and and you know some of them are very difficult characters you know mm-hmm. and, but they're funny i mean they're just so no, funny thank and, you well that, that's a that's a key element for me like that i mean i i don't think i would know how to approach um, the characters or that I mean, are, are, are you as funny as Walt? Do you have Walt's sense of humor? Oh, you know, yeah, my wife says I do, but the problem is I also have Vic's sense of humor and Henry's sense of humor. And, <laughs> oh, you got them you all. Know, I got all of them. Like, and so, you know, it sometimes can real be, be a real pain in the butt to be around, you know, sometimes. But don't you, don't you ever meet anybody in your travels and you think, oh, I'm going to put that person in my book? Oh, Absolutely. But, <laughs> because they're so unusual. Like, oh, absolutely, make... <laughs> absolutely. My favorite quote on writing is the one from Wallace Stegner on writing and teaching fiction, where he says, "The greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off anybody alive or dead." And what a crock that is! I mean, that's your job to go find people, interesting people, and put them in your books. Whether you know whether you, you take them, you know, completely, you know, full blown from the head of Zeus, you know, and and drop them, you know, right into your your novel, or you know, you, just bits and pieces. You know, there's something about somebody that strikes you look at you know and holds your attention you know well that's just too much of an opportunity to not include that you know the characters in your books just too much what is the and i don't know if i've ever asked you this before well what is the what do you figure is the age difference between walt and Vic? uh i don't even know i've never even sat down and tried to figure it out you know really? i know there is i know there is you know a, an age difference between the two of them you know, is it wrong to is it wrong to wonder that i mean should we not even um, be wondering no, that no, I mean, people can. It's kind of like when people are trying to figure out how old Walt is. You know, they're always yeah, trying exactly. to figure that out, too. Like, because, I mean, he did fight in Vietnam, like, so he is of a certain age. But, you know, like I said, the books, you know, go through, like, a, a four, you know, book cycle, you know, to get through, you know, like, one year of Walt's life. Like, so, you know, we met back Walt back in 2005. Like, it's been 16 years. But nonetheless, you know, he's only aged four years, you know, since we met him. And so, you know, I had, I had a reviewer who was arguing with me and saying, you know, like, oh, well, he's too old to be doing all this stuff. And I'm like, you're you're not taking into consideration, you know, the fact that he's only four years older than when we first met him. You know, and so, you know, that has an effect, I think. Okay, and then, you know, there, there's a little bit of a willingful sense 
of uh, disbelief like that, you know, when it comes to um, serial fiction, you know, whether, you know, whatever it happens to be, but certainly within the mystery field. Um, I mean, you know, the majority of protagonists that you have out there these days, you know, they're, they're older characters. Like, they've been around for like, you know, 10, 20, some of them, you know, creeping up on 30 years, you know, and so nobody really wants to see them grow so old that all they do is sit at their office and tell, you know, their minions, to, you know, to go do what they want them to do. Like, you know, we want them alive. We want them active. Right. We want them out there doing all the things that we want them to do. I mean, same way I feel about myself, like when I'm working here on the ranch. Like, I always think of Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew was always 18 years old. She never, exactly. she never grew, she never had a birthday. <laughs> no, frozen, absolutely frozen in time. Like, And I did kind of contend with it a little bit. I can't remember which book it is, but I think it was about two or three books back. Um, Walt had to go in for a, an insurance um, uh, physical, you know, had to go in for a medical physical with Isaac Bloomfield, right. you know, for the insurance purposes. And, you know, and Isaac reminded him of all the damage that he's done to himself, you know, here in the last, you know, four years. But the fact is, is he's in remarkably good shape. Look at He's in uh, extraordinarily good shape. Look at And so, so I, don't, I don't pay much attention to it. And as long as Vic's, you know, still got a crush on him and still after him, I, which still worries him a little bit. Like, I think, you know, I'll just allow that to play itself out. That was another thing that I was told early on to not do. You know, I mean, uh, all the, you know, when you're first starting out, there are a lot of other authors that are more than willing to, you know, offer you advice. And one of the pieces of advice that they gave me was they said, well, don't, you know, give your, you can have sexual tension between your characters, but don't let anything happen. Um, because, you know, they, you know, they, you got to wait at least like 17 or 18 books, you know, before something actually happens. And my immediate response to that was, what kind of women are you dating? Um, <laughs> they wait 17 or 18 years for something to happen. Like, and I was like, the only thing it's going to do is just complicate their lives and make them, you know, more uh, difficult, make them more, you know, multi-layered. And, you know, and, and I think the key element in that was like having them both, you know, have um, the opposite gender kind of response to that type of thing. You know, two friends together, get together, something happens. You know, usually the, the, one, the female response is the one that Walt has, where he says, well, you know, okay, that was a mistake, and we're never going to do that again, and, uh, you know, we'll just pretend like that didn't happen, like that. You know, and Vic has the more, you know, male response, which is, that was great, and we are definitely doing that again. You know, and so I think <laughs> you know, that was the element that, that, that makes, well, it kind of makes it work, you know, I think, you know, because, you know, She's very clear about it. You know, she's like, I'm not looking for hearth and home. I'm not looking to get married. I'm not looking to have children. I'm not looking for any of that stuff. I just really enjoy your company. And, you know, that that's kind of a, you know, a situation, you know, for Walt, like, to have to contend with, you know, but one that he, he has to, like that, because she's kind of a force of nature. Are you Are you the most happy when you're writing? Oh, absolutely. Oh, gosh, yes. I'm not one of those tortured, you know, artists. I'm not. I'm not one of those. You oh, know, I have uh, to sit down and write a book. But when you yeah, see, when you first no, sit I, down and you write the first words, and I, you know what's interesting? I love the way the, when you start out a chapter, you always have a sentence. Somebody's saying something, and then we we wonder <laughs> who the hell is saying that? What's that all about? And you better explain it, you know. <laughs> and you do, and it's so interesting the way you do it. And then we have to, figure, and then you slowly realize who it is that's talking and what they're talking about. No, oh, thank you. But, yeah, no, well, dialogue is very very important to me simply because it's the voice of the character and you know that's especially the, the back and forth dialogue the back oh, and forth yeah, dialogue has to be like good a, you know the banter and the and that's the not humor. it's not easy to do well no no like and you know and for me it's like it's important like it's simply because whenever i'm talking to students one of the big things i always tell them is is you only get to describe physically the character one time you know you don't get to 
physically describe the character every chapter right. or something. You could describe them physically one time. Whereas they're going to speak for the throughout the remainder of this novel. They're going to talk all the way through it. So if you're going to use your energies like to try and differentiate your character, spend your time differentiating your character you know, in the dialogue, not their physicality. Um, you know, I mean, there are certain things I have to take into consideration with Walt. You know, he's a big guy. He's like about six foot five. And so, you know, his perspective on life, you know, it, it has an effect. You know, to be about 250-some pounds and, you know, and be six foot five, you know, it has an effect. You know, and so I have to take those things into consideration. He's always wearing a cowboy hat. I have to take that into consideration. He's always wearing his cowboy boots. I have to take that into consideration. But it's the voice of the character that, you know, I put all of my efforts into. Um, because I want to not have to say Walt said or, you know, the sheriff, you know, uh, said or, you know, Longmire said or things like that. And, you know, and, the, and the character can't be boring either. You can't, you well, got to no, have the character no, be interesting. Not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully. Like, I mean, you know, when you, you know, the only time you make a character boring is like, you know, whenever they're a culprit, you know, so that they can <laughs> kind of skim along under the radar or something like that. So, but, uh, but to go back a little bit to what you were asking about, the humor for me is, 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 is so essential like that just simply because I see that as being such a an essential part of every human being's character and then also it's a defense mechanism I mean people that are involved in life and death kind of situations and everything you know the the, the way you make it through is by having a sense of humor I mean you know anybody that's in the medical field you know law enforcement you know teaching any of those kind of things where there's a lot of high pressure uh, well you know you got to have a sense of humor or else you're going to be in big trouble really quick and uh, that, that to me is... is, is but do, you, do you have more of a sense of humor now that you're writing than you did before you were writing? <laughs> well, I'm certainly having a lot more fun and uh, enjoying my life, you know, to such an extent. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those guys that, you know, or one of those people like that, that you know, that, that was, was extraordinarily fortunate enough to kind of fall into the thing that it is that I should be doing. It never occurs to me on a daily basis that, you know, maybe there's something else I should be doing or is there something else I'm more interested in or anything like that. I mean, what I'm doing is what I really, really enjoy. Like, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Right. And what a thrill that is. I mean, it's a, that's a lifetime thrill. That's something that lasts the full life. And you can't, you can't even think about retiring because you wouldn't want to. No, no, no. I'm definitely going to, you know, I, I'm going to go, you know, like, you know, Robert Parker and like all, you know, all my heroes, like, you know, the end, you know, hopefully I'll get to the end of a book, type the end and then fall over the keyboard. Like, you know, I want to, hopefully I won't be in the middle of a book or at the beginning of a book. Like, and hopefully I'll be towards the end. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't have, you know, this world to go, you know, roaming in, you know, on a regular basis. You know, it's, uh, it's essential, you know, to, to me, you know, psychologically, physically, um, you know, you know, all the other things too, you know. Right, exactly. But you don't, you seem fearless. You seem like, you know, I mean, you don't worry, you don't, you don't seem like you have a lot of worries at all either. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, I guess I was kind of brought up that way. I mean, Judy says that to me. My wife, Judy, she's always saying, you know, you're not scared of much, are you? Like, and I, I guess I'm not. Like, I, I, you know, I, I had one of those fathers who thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with creative, you know, creative stupidity. I mean, not knowing you're in trouble or not knowing you can't do it can sometimes be a very powerful, uh, you know, motivating faction. Um, and then, you know, I just, you know, I feel like, you know, why not? You know, give it a try. 
I see what happens. What's the worst? You failed. You know, okay, well, then you learn something, didn't you? And then you go back and try it again like, until you get it right. And so, you know, and I, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm very comfortable in the writing process. You know, I, I, I do it every day. You know, I, in the final analysis, you know, I mean, I spend more time, you know, with, these, my, with my imaginary friends than I do my family. You know, I mean, I, I'm yeah. up here in the loft, you know, writing, you know, eight, ten hours a day. You know, and so it's a world that I'm, I'm very, you know, very, you know, at ease in. I think. Is anybody else in your family a writer, or have the writing bug like you do? No, 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 no other writers. Storytellers, big on storytellers. Yeah. Like they, they were all storytellers, and that was the worst one. And I thought, okay, well, if I can't, you know, if I can't tell the things, maybe I can write them down. And uh, and so I did. I attempted that that first one, the cold dish. Like it, and uh, it kind of made for a lifelong pursuit. Now they they are not filming any more long wires. The show is done. It is for now. Like it. I mean, we're waiting to see what's going to happen. Okay, um, so it could come back. Well, we're kind of like victims of our own success, you know, to a certain extent. You know, what happened was, is, um, you know, Warner Brothers made the TV show and then uh, sold it to A&E um, to broadcast. They broadcast it for three years. It was the highest rated scripted drama they ever had. And they came back to Warner Brothers after three years and said, we want to buy the show. And Warner said, "Well, we're not going to sell you the show. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to we're going to keep it." Um, and A and E, you know, in a little fit of pique, um, decided that they were going to cancel the show and teach Warner Brothers a lesson. You know, well, you know, this is Warner Brothers. They're the ones that taught Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney how to be tough guys. Like, <laughs> and so they just moved on down the road. Like that. And uh, I remember talking with Peter Roth, who was like the head guy at. Uh, at, uh, at, at at Warner and, and their their uh, television division, like at Warner Horizon, and I remember asking them. I said, you know, well, you know, do you think we're going to end up somewhere else? And he goes, oh yeah, we're definitely going to end up somewhere else. And I said, well, where do you think we're going to be? Like, and he goes, well, I think you know, right now the front runner is this uh, streaming service. Like, and I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, a streaming service. Like, at, where they can play, you know, movies and television and everything on their phones and on their computers and all this. And I was like, oh, that's it. We're dead. We're just dead. That's the end of it. Well, that was Netflix, you know. So obviously, I'm an idiot when it comes to technology. And you know, if I give you any stock tips, you know, in the next 30 minutes, ignore them completely, like that, because I don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, but yeah, then we got picked up by Netflix. Like it and ran for three years. And guess what happened? Um, they wanted to buy the show. Um, it was a wonderful success for them too. And, uh, and Warner Brothers once again came back and said, "No, we don't want to sell it." Mm. Oh my gosh! Netflix was a lot more gracious about it, you know, and, and said, "Okay, well, we're going to do one more season and let you guys finish it out, and then, and then we're not going to do any more seasons like it." And so, so we're still, you know, under the auspices of Warner Brothers. Like that, the only good news about that is, is that here about a year ago they made an announcement that they were going to start developing their own streaming service, um, like Paramount has, like you know, oh, ESPN really? has, like CBS has, all these other, you know, and pretty much that's the direction um, a lot of you know these these big studios are going in. They've they figured out that making TV shows and movies is hard, but having streaming platforms is relatively easy. Um, and so you know I can't help but think like that sometime in the future when they you know get up and on their wheels like that, that it would be kind of foolish for them to not include you know one of the highest rated scripted dramas they ever had. So right. we what happens? We haven't really talked about the plot too much of Next to Last Stand. Why don't you describe it a little bit in detail so people can understand more what it's about. 
Sure. Like um, we were talking about uh, Custer's uh, Last Stand, the Little Bighorn, like that. And uh, you know, for me, the, the the interesting thing was is to try and find an access point. You know, to try and find some reason to talk about this, like that. And uh, and also like that. You know, to to give a perspective. I mean, you know, to try and take on all of the Little Bighorn and try and include it in a novel. You know, was going to be a bit much. Like that. And so I needed an access point. And I remember sitting in a bar um, up in uh, Red Lodge, Montana. And uh, it's interesting, like that, because the first time I'd heard of this painting mentioned, you know, in a literary sense, was actually in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Like that, and Richard Jordan, like at the character, oh, really? um, mentions it, you know, when he's having a conversation with his grandfather, and in a bar in Red Lodge, Montana. Like that, and I remember seeing the painting, you know, um, uh, Custer's Last Fight, Cassili Adams. Uh, there and I thought, huh? Like, and I thought about the history of that painting, and so I thought I'd do a little research on it, and discovered that uh, Norman McLean, like that, who had done uh, *A River Runs Through oh, It*, yeah. uh, *Young Men in Fire*, like that, had also <laughs> done a collection of essays and letters, and so he had mentioned it. Like, and so I went back, you know, reread his essays on it, and they were extraordinarily interesting and extremely well read. Like, you know, as everything that Norman McLean ever wrote was, oh, yeah. and uh, and so I started doing a little bit more research on it, discovering, you know, what had happened to the painting, the history of the painting, and all. All of this and it's it's been referred to as the most viewed by questionable and inebriated art critics in the world uh, piece of artwork again and uh, the reason behind that being that it is now referred to mostly as the Budweiser painting um, what had happened was is the painting was done about ten years after the little bighorn it went on tour came back to st. Louis um, the guy that owned the saloon near the train station in St. Louis bought the painting, and um, he, you know, put it up on his wall just as a conversation piece. It was a huge painting, 16 and a half by nine and a half feet tall, and he put it up there as a conversation starter to get people to come into the bar and you know sit down and have more than one drink, like that, as they discussed you know the painting up on the wall Great and idea. the little bighorn and Custer and all of that. Well, that went on until um, I think it was like about 20 or 30 years later, like at the the bar which these type of establishments have a habit of doing, went out of business and went bankrupt. Like, well, one of their biggest creditors at that point in time was a then small brewery in St. Louis, Missouri, called Anheuser-Busch. Wow. And Augie Bush walks down the street, walks in the saloon, and says, you owe me $30,000 for beer. You know, what are you going to pay me with? And they said, well, we don't have any money. We're bankrupt. Well, you know, Bush, you know, Augie Bush, like always, you know, uh, Never wanted to miss an opportunity. Looked up on the wall and said, "I'll take the painting." He <laughs> tore the painting off the wall. Like he rolled it up and put it up under his arm. Like he walked back up to the brewery, rolled it out on a big table there in front of his marketing and publicity guys, and said, "We're going to make posters and prints and lithographs of this painting, and we're going to put our name on them, and we're going to send them out to every restaurant, every bar, every saloon in the country that sells Budweiser beer. And by the time we're done with this, we're going to be a lot bigger brewery than we are now." Well, it worked. It worked with a vengeance. Um, at one point in time, they were shipping out close to a million of these things a year, for goodness sake. And I defy you. You know, even there in Pennsylvania, I'm sure it's the same thing. I've seen it hanging in numerous bars, like at beer gardens. Well, now we have to find it. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, and then I know, you know, that they're all over the West, you know, everywhere. And so, you know, I, I got interested in it. I thought, okay, this will be interesting. Like, well, I discovered that... Um, uh, after you know he you know used the painting like you know to make these prints you know for a couple of decades, by the time I got into the 1930s, um, he had a little fit of you know philanthropic zeal, and donated the painting to the headquarters of the Seventh Cavalry, which at that point in time was based in Fort Bliss, Texas. And 
and they put it up on their commissary uh, officers club wall where it hung until 1946 when the commissary burned to the ground and the painting was destroyed hmm. or was it um, and that kind of is the key element you know to uh, um, the the next to last stand you know where we you know find out that you know the possibility that this um, painting might still exist well that was an idea like that, but then, of course, I had to find some way to bring it to Absaroka County. I had to find some way to get Walt Longmire involved. Well, just outside of Buffalo, which is kind of the, the basis for Durant, you know, here in Johnson County, Wyoming, we've got the, the Wyoming Veterans Home, or the Soldier and Sailors Home, um, Fort McKinney, you know, which was actually built in response, you know, to the Battle of the Little Bighorn uh, to help protect the area, supposedly. There really wasn't any reason to protect the area, like that from marauding Indians, you know, that right. late you know, in the Wild West, but it was a great way to boost the economy and uh, get soldiers and horses, you know, and hay and wagons and all of that, you know, and make it more of a destination point to give your town, you know, a little bit more of an opportunity to be able to survive. And so, anyway, like that, um, we have all these old veterans, like that, that are up there, you know, and I, over the years, you know, over the past, you know, 20, 25 years, you know, I have, you know, driven by there, like that, and there are these old guys, the waivers, like that, and they sit out there in their wheelchairs and wave, you know, at the, the traffic, like that, and I would stop, you know, because I'm, I'm always, you know, looking for a story, you know, or looking right. for somebody interesting to talk to, like that, and I saw them out there, and I would stop, you know, and talk with them, and these guys were like, some of them were like World War two veterans, you know, they could tell you stories about the things that they had done in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, all of these things. Like, and so it became like, you know, a stopping point for me every once in a while. Like, I just to sit and talk with these guys. And I kind of formed a little bit of a relationship with them, which was, you know, kind of wonderful. And I started thinking about it, and I thought, okay, well, you know, what if, you know, I asked the sheriff at that point in time, this was years ago, and I asked him, I said, do you guys ever have any interaction, you know, with the veterans home? And he said, oh, yeah, he said, sometimes, you know, we'll get a call like that, you know, and they'll find, you know, either a weapon or armaments or ammunition or something like that in their foot lockers, you know, things that they should not have, you know, but they've smuggled away and have up there. And he said, you know, we'll get a call when they pass away and we'll have to go up there, you know, and dispose of, you know, the materials and all of that. Mm. And I thought, huh. That would be interesting, you know, because Walt would get those phone calls and he would go up there and respond. And I thought it would, you know, it would kind of like touch him, you know, being a Vietnam veteran like that and the experiences that he had, you oh, know. Yeah. And, and so when he goes up there, of course, like that, he discovers, you know, a portion of a, a painting, a study, you know, of a, what looks like a hauntingly familiar painting, but he can't quite place it like that. And then a four-shime shoebox full of $100 bills, you know, making up about a million dollars. Um, and uh, unmarked bills, you know, in this guy's footlocker. And so the big question becomes, what's this painting? What's this part of this painting, and where did this million dollars come from? And that's what makes your book so good. It's another thing that makes them so good. In the middle, of the, we're wondering, how is this story going to play out? What's going to happen at the end? <laughs> And you have to know. I mean, that, and that's it, it stems from the same thing I was saying about the, the beginning of the chapters. You read that first, that first little line, and you're like, oh well, now I got to read the rest of the chapter. I have to because I, I can't leave it hanging like that. What in the world does that mean? You know? <laughs> Thank you. But you, but it's true. I mean, you literally have to keep reading the whole chapter, so it keeps you reading. I mean, if you've ever read a book where you read like the first couple pages and you just can't get into the book. 
Right. And right. I, I hate that feeling. It's the worst feeling in the world as a reader. You don't want to ever experience that. But it does happen. But it's oh, never yeah. never happened with your books. But I'm saying it, it does happen. And sometimes, you know, you plow ahead and sometimes it's just a slow beginning. <laughs> and you can get through it. But sometimes you're like, I'm so bored with this book. What am I going to do? You know, and you uh, feel guilty. Yeah. Well, yeah. The other thing is, is, I mean, you know, it's a $28 investment. I mean, you know, somebody plunks down 28 bucks, you know, in hardback, you know, to get your newest book. You know, that's a contract is what that is. That is a contract, you know, uh, between you and the reader. Like, And I think that, you know, you really have to, you know, put everything you can, you know, into that into that novel and try and make it. You but know, when you're sitting at, possibly. I don't know, where do you write at, actually? Where where are you? Are you in your office, in your house I, when you yeah, write? I am right now. Like, I'm up in my Lost, like at, um, whenever. But is that where you write? Do you do all your yeah. writing there? Yeah, I do. Like, I mean, I sometimes break away, like, and I'll write some other places. Like, in the summertime, I'll move down into my shop, um, and I'll write down there, like, at or you know, um, I've got a cabin up on the mountain. Sometimes I'll like take a well, laptop. Well, here's what I'm here. here's what I'm trying to get at. When you're writing these chapters, do you always know when something's boring, when something isn't going to work? Yeah, you kind of get a feel. I mean, you know. Um, I can't help but think like that. You know, it, it, that if, if something is boring to me, it's going to be boring to the reader. You know, if, if something's not happening, if something's not popping, if something's not crackling, then you know, I, I, you know, something's wrong. Like you know, and of course, it was Raymond Chandler that said, you know, whenever you know the book gets slow, you know, have somebody come into the room with a gun. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you have a problem with your manuscript, have somebody come into the room with a gun. If it's a big problem, make it a big gun. And uh, you know, I, I, I don't That's prescribe, funny. you know, to that particular. You know philosophy, but I do think that you know you you know I, I do have I, I've got something even better than big guns. I've got interesting characters. You know whenever you know I feel like I need another voice or I need something else to happen. You know all I got to do is have Vic come in the room. All I've got to do is have Henry walk into the room or have Walt head out to the Red Pony Bar and Grill or you know right. go up and play chess with Lucian Connolly at the Home for Assisted Living. I mean yeah you know, I've got this like you know this this ensemble uh, of characters that I really enjoy like that just because. They come from so many different directions. And, and in this you know, book, Vic, Vic is wanting something really big. I won't tell anybody what it is. <laughs> they want everybody to experience it themselves. But she wants something really. She's thinking really big in this book. She does. She does. <laughs> like, it's been long enough. Look like, at you know. She's tired of this foolishness. Look like, at exactly. you know, small rural sheriff's department. Deal with a limited. And with Vic, once she usually can. gets, doesn't she? Yeah, as a general rule. Even though, like you know, I don't think it's something that Walt wants her to have. Like so. <laughs> Well, we have to let you go i know i know you've got something coming up so it's been an absolute it's it's always a joy you're, the, you're one of the nicest human beings alive you oh, really my are my pleasure crazy. david my pleasure like let's uh, let's do it again later on in the in the, in the fall or in the winter like that i'll still be yes, around indeed. Like, and i'm not going anywhere so if you want to you know do a, a chronology of the of the series or something like that just you know think about it like that come up with an idea like getting this to you throw me an email or throw me a message like it and we'll we'll set up another time another date you're a gem you really are a gem <laughs> Guy, thank you so much. This My has been pleasure. this has been David's Book Talk. We'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you. And we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, 
Dale Brown, David Baldacci.